one of the reasons we do life groups is so people get connected and people become more than just a face in the crowd. I was uh, talking to some people just the other day and they were talking about being in a group for years and they didn't know uh, everyone's name. And so it's, it's important to, to be known uh, and to, to make other people uh, at home. After our service today, we'll be having a time in our fellowship center where you get chances to eat some things and just get connected as well. And if you're in a life group, here's my challenge for you today. Uh, talk to someone this morning and just ask them, are you in a life group? And just try to encourage them to connect one. If they can't come to yours, maybe that'll be the, the invitation that they'll check out some of the other life groups. Talking about getting known and uh, being uh, better acquainted with people, I was reading about this teacher, elementary school teacher, and she was beginning the year, and, and she wanted to make sure that she kind of understood the students a little bit better as well as allow them to get to know each other. And so she asked this very simple question, when you grow up, what do you want to be? And so they went around the room. They were sharing the typical answers. Some said, I want to be president. Another said, I'd like to be a teacher just like you. I think they were kind of looking for a better grade in the class. But uh, some wanted to be a policeman or a fireman. And uh, finally got to this little boy named Billy. And they asked him the question, Billy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, possible. The teacher said, possible? Why do you want to be possible? Well, because at home, I, my mom is always telling me I'm impossible. And so when I grow up, I want to be possible. Sometimes we feel that way. You know, people are telling us all kinds of things. We're wondering, what's our, what's our life going to be next? Well, last Lord's Day, we looked at Easter. And Easter, so what of Easter? And it's great good news. The good news of Easter is that we don't have to be confused about life. As you think about that, and we kind of focus on one part of life that people are confused. But there's all kinds of questions that people have. As they go on the journey of life, if they take the time just to reflect, you know, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? What's going to happen next? Is there really something more to this than what I'm experiencing right now? And really because of the resurrection, we don't have to be confused or as the King James language, New King James language says, perplexed. We can have those questions answered because Jesus nailed it when he conquered the grave. It's also true, and so what of Easter, that we don't have to be filled with fear. Now, there are things that are fearful in this life, but we don't have to be controlled by those fears because, again, we, we have the assurance of God's presence wherever we go. But sometimes after a Sunday like Easter, we say, okay, I, I got the big question answered. Okay, what's going to happen next if I die and I'm connected with Jesus Christ? Uh, I don't have to live by fear because the greatest fear of life, which death has been conquered. Well, if that's the so what, what's the now what? You know, the New Testament didn't stop after the Gospels were finished. We're in a series called Questions Asked and Answered. And sometimes as we come to places like this or we open up a big book like this, whatever size you might have, they make them a lot smaller now and you can put them on your computer screens and things. But there are a lot of words in this book. And sometimes we're just overwhelmed by that and we feel well, we really can't understand it. But really... God gave us this book so we could understand his message for our lives. And really, the New Testament unfolds that. And we went through the four Gospels, which really told the story about Jesus. But there are 23 other books. And really, those books answer the now what. It's interesting, as you look at all of the New Testament, you'll see there's there's a there's a line in which we kind of get the flow if we can see the simplicity of it. And this morning, we're going to see that though with 
man, there are a lot of things that are impossible, but with God, all things are possible if we understand his plan for us. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to tell you really my message at the end in case you kind of get lost in the details. And then, then I want to be, come back and look at the context of what I'm going to say. The now what, as it's been revealed to us right after the Gospels, is that God wants us to understand what it means to live for the kingdom of God. We sang earlier about Jesus reigning. There's freedom in this place because Jesus reigns. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's really all about the kingdom of God. And that's the now what. And even though that might be a mystery to you this morning, hopefully we'll get some clarity as to understand just the, the simple truths of what it means to live in the kingdom reign of rule of God. And then secondly, we're going to get in on the mission for God's people. What does it mean to get the message of God out? And what part do we play? And what part does God play in getting the message out? So we're going to look at the kingdom of God and the message of God as the now what after Jesus is alive. But before we do that, I want to put that in a context. Because what God does, he tells us his story about Jesus. And then he tells us the story about the Holy Spirit and his people after Jesus. And the, the writer he uses and chooses to give us that message is a man named Luke. If you want to give him a title, he's Dr. Luke. He's a physician. He, he's a man that was a careful historian. He was inspired by God, so he's directed particularly by him. But he used some natural means to get his data. And he got it very meticulously, and he wanted to make it sure that it was clear and to the point. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you might want to turn to the book of Acts, but I'm going to look at at least one other passage before we look at that. So the book of Acts, and if you don't have your Bible, you can just listen on as I read. But as we think about the message, we need to understand it was written to us by a man named Luke. And really, he he wrote more verses in the New Testament than anybody else. The Apostle Paul wrote more books or more letters. Luke only wrote two, but if you count the verses, he wrote more than Paul. So he was one up on him, though he was a close companion and friend of his. Really what you have is you have Luke 1, which is the gospel of Luke, and then you have Luke 2, which is the acts by Luke. And really, interesting enough, as they look at the original, the copies of the original documents, some are convinced that really this was one book. And we've divided for the purpose of clarity, but it was it was the extension of the gospel, his story, Jesus' story, and then it came to be the story of the Holy Spirit and God's people. But now what after Jesus left? Really, as you look at the resurrection, and we talked about last week that the resurrection is really the, at the heart of Christianity. Sometimes we need to put things very simply so we get it. Christianity is a resurrection faith. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we are in this place really about nothing. Because that is the heart of all that he said. And really, if you see this, this, this strain throughout the New Testament, you'll see that it's everywhere. For instance, in the Gospel of Luke, you see that the resurrection was predicted or promised. Uh, listen as I, as I read Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And in that, you just simply see that, again, this was the theme of the story. This is the theme of those four little books that begin the New Testament. Then he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all these things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Which simply says this. Again, 
The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus was not a story that just came upon us when Jesus arrived. This was promised and predicted from the very beginning. And Jesus was trying to hammer that into the, the minds and listeners to his preaching and teaching. Verse 32, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And again, you've got to put yourself in that position of hearing this. Here were his best friends, and they were hearing about their teacher, their rabbi, the one that they looking as their Messiah king, and they were going to see him spit upon and mocked and killed. They did not want to hear that message. They will scourge him and kill him. And then he adds this, and the third day he will rise again. Now, they had actually heard this message multiple times from Jesus. And if you've ever been in a classroom situation, if the teacher says it once, you know, he might have just been saying things off the cuff. But if he says it twice, you better what? Better listen. Three or four times, you know it's going to be on the test. Well, Jesus said it multiple times. And yet, what was the response of the disciples? Verse 34 says, and they understood none of these things. Now, was it because Jesus was using language that was above their pay grade? Was it very complicated words? No, it was simply they heard it, but they did not want to believe it. They somehow felt maybe for the very first time Jesus was making a mistake. The resurrection is at the heart of the Christian message. Because without it, we have no message. And so the Gospels are the resurrection predicted. But it's not just the resurrection predicted or promised. It's the resurrection happening. It happened. As we know, Luke ends that part of his writings to us, whether you divide it in half or it's one big writing. In Luke chapter 24, when he has the statements of the, of the angels saying, why are you searching for the living among the, what? The dead. He's not here. Why? Because he has arisen. And so it's the resurrection predicted and the resurrection happened. But then the now what? And the now what is, what do we do with that truth? As you go into the book of Acts, you have the Acts, the resurrection preached and the resurrection lived. I almost didn't want to use that word preached because sometimes we reserve that for you know, people like me who are standing up in front of other people in a group setting. Really, you could say the resurrection was talked about. It was spread. It was communicated. It was, it was set across the counter in people's homes. Everywhere God's people went, they talked about Jesus, his crucifixion, but his resurrection. And then now what is after the resurrection, we got something to say. I remember when I grew up, this just popped in my head. My parents and people around me used to think I was very introverted, very quiet, because I really didn't say a whole lot. You know why I didn't say a whole lot when I was young? I had nothing to say. <laughs> it was that simple. But God's people, no matter what kind of personality trait you are, we have, we've got something to talk about. It, and it's good news. So the book of Acts tells us the story. And in so many different ways... We needed the book of Acts because if you had run into the book of Romans, it would have been all about the resurrection explained and applied and figured out. But you wouldn't see, well, how did people actually do that? Sometimes the best way we learn is not reading the instructions out of a manual. Anybody, anybody really good at reading instructions out of a manual and figuring it out? 
there's some things I can do that way, but if not, I, you know, I go to somebody and say, just show me how to do that. And I, I watch them, and I do exactly what they do, and particularly with computers. I, ha- I have to have people kind of just go through every little step or I don't get it. Well, the book of Acts is that. It's not just hearing about it. It's seeing it in flesh and blood as people lived it out. And really, that's what the book of Acts is about. It's the, the, the resurrection preached or talked about, and it's the resurrection lived. When... And we're going to see this a little bit in the Bible study you look at this next week. When people looked at these followers of Jesus, as they looked at their credentials, as they looked at their lives, they're saying, you know, they aren't that impressive. You know, as I look out at you, you know, you're not that. uh, No. As people look at us, sometimes they might say, well, all right, Christianity, you know, there's a variety of different people who believe it and live it. But uh, what's so impressive about them? Well, what became impressive is they recognized that these were people who had been with Jesus. And because of that, their character of life was different. They loved people who didn't love them. They were kind to people who others weren't kind to. They sacrificed when there was no gain. And the only explanation of that was not because of their higher learning. They had more money to to spend than they could spend, and so they just poured it out on everybody. They had simply been with Jesus. And as Peter, in the beginning of the church, and he explains why he responds to persecution, he simply says, I've met the resurrection Savior, and that's why we obey him. So the context of the now what is the book of Acts unfolds for us how it's talked about and how it's lived. Let me give you a little bit more context to what we're going to be talking about this morning. This is all for free. We're not really preaching the message yet, all right? The book of Acts is the record of the activity or accomplishments and achievements of the Holy Spirit through his people. Now, I put it that way simply to give you a mouthful, but the book, the word Acts simply means achievements or accomplishments. And often in our Bibles, they'll say the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it's the apostles doing things, which, or the apostles are the sent ones from God. It's often used in a very precise way of the, of the original 12. But it's really not the acts of people singularly. It, it's really the acts of God through people. Have you ever had, had someone describe an experience uh, and they say it's a God thing? And I, I can't explain this. Well, what happened? And there's no way to figure this out. It must have simply been a God thing. Well, that's what the book of Acts is about. To, d- to describe how life is different. And the only way to understand it, it's, it's a God thing. And so the book of Acts is the list of the accomplishments and achievements. That's what the, the word Acts, praxis in the original language simply means. But it's the achievements and accomplishments of the Holy Spirit through people. And God continues to do that. And now, I don't know why God has chosen to use us who are so uh, um, needy and we are not the most talented and filled with a lot of things to offer, but he simply wants to take weakened vessels, fill us with himself, and then use us to be the hands and feet and tongue of God. And that should continue now. And, and really the book of Acts, it begins with Acts 1, that God's people don't know what to do, and God says, simply wait till I help you. 
And then through Acts 1 through 28, we see how God's people do it. Not perfectly, but led by him. And then, then there's unfinished business. Acts actually ends rather abruptly. You ever been to a movie and you're all anticipating what's going to happen? There's going to be this great climax. And then all of a sudden, you know, something's missing. I mean, it, it's just, it doesn't feel like it's finished. Well, that's how we ought to feel as God's people. We ought to be part of that unfinished business doing God's plan. We ought to be an Acts 29 people. We're writing the next chapter of God making his accomplishments and achievements by his Holy Spirit through his people. I want to give you a simple breakdown of this book. Probably the key verse in this book is, Acts 1, eight and really, again, speaks again. If you want to have a, a one-word summary of this book, you'd say it's the witness of God's people. Acts is the story of the witness by God's church. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's really what the book of Acts is about. As I said earlier, it's living for the kingdom of God and it's getting out the message of God. And you really can kind of divide this rather large book, 28 chapters, in thirds. In chapters 1 through 7, it's, it's really the witness locally in Jerusalem. Bran was sharing earlier that we are call, called as a people to be concerned and reaching out to our oikos. And if you're not familiar with that language here at our church, that's a Greek word simply meaning... Your extended household, your, your sphere of relationships, the people you know as you go through life. We need to reach people that we know and care about. You, you can't be a, a witness in Africa or Asia if you can't be a witness here. And so it begins locally. We are to be a witness to the people that we know, our neighbors, the people we work with, the people we have fun with, and simply be Jesus to them. And that, first of all, began in Jerusalem. And really interesting enough, that story is only about two, year, two years in length. It's from 33 to 35, and it's chapters 1 through 7. And there's a primary person that illustrates that. It's the Apostle Peter. It's Peter primarily used in this first section of the book of Acts. And then in Acts 8 through 12, you have a kind of a regional witness. It goes a little bit further. It'd be like reaching out into our county or to our state. Regionally in Judea, Samaria, from 35 to 48 A.D., and it's primarily Peter and a, a man named Philip. He wasn't an apostle. He was just a man making himself available to God. His first portfolio was to wait on tables, and then God decided to use him in other ways. And you see the witness going broader. And then in Acts chapter 13 through 28, you have now a global outreach to the ends of the earth, 48 to 62, primarily the person there is the Apostle Paul, who also had Barnabas kind of helping him out as well. And so that's the context. That's the context of the now what after the resurrection. Is that God has a plan for his people. It really is the same story repeated over and over. It's the resurrection. And because of that, we have something to talk about. We have something to say to people. We have something to live out. The Apostle Paul in Philippians said that we can live under resurrection power. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead can live within us. 
But what I want to do is, is look for a few passages in the book of Acts and focus on simply two truths that we need to understand as we try to live out the now what of the gospel. And I said to you that the resurrection is the heart of Christianity. But you could also put it this way. If you understand Christianity, it's not a man-centered faith. It's a God-centered faith. It's all about what we understand about God because then life makes sense. And we're going to see as Luke begins this book that he begins it in a way for us to understand again what's most important. If you believe in the resurrection now, make sure you understand what it means to live for the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been in Christian circles for any length of time, you might have heard that phrase, kingdom of God. And, and I have read extensively about this, and I have heard people t- preach and talk about this. And often when I finish hearing what they have to say and reading what they've had to write, I'm more confused than before I heard them or read them. I want to make the kingdom of God as simple and as clear as I can. Because this is crucial for understanding the now what after Jesus rose victorious from the grave. This is what God's people are called to, to live out as representatives, kingdom living. But let's look at Acts 1 to begin with, 1 through 3, and then we'll look at a variety of other passages in the time we have left. Luke writes, the former account I made, and class, what would that be? That would be the gospel of Luke. I I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And really, that's what the gospel of Luke is about, is to give you his story, what he taught about, what he did, what he had to say. Now, Theophilus, interesting enough, is is a word name that actually means a friend of God. But if you read author's comment on this particular text, they say, we're not sure if he was a one who was going to be a future friend of God or one who was already a friend of God. There are many who are saying, as, as Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, as well the book of Acts, he was writing to someone who wasn't quite there yet. And maybe that's where you are this morning. And if you are, that's, that's great. You're a person who's trying to discern and discover and struggle with do I really want to get into this Christianity thing? Do, do I really want to be a, a Jesus follower? Do I really want to put my faith, my, my life now and my life later in the hands of a God I cannot see? That's recorded in a book that was written thousands of years ago. Well, whether you're living in this century or whether you were living in the first century, you still had to wrestle with the person of Jesus. And so... Luke wrote the story, the gospel, to persuade Theophilus to be a Christ follower. And then he was going to record the book of Acts to say, hey, not only is it true, but it works. And really, isn't that where we all have to wrestle with? If something is what I'm going to commit my life to, I don't want it to be that which is a lie. I don't want it to be that which is false. I want to know it's true. But on the other hand, I also want to know if it's true, can I, can I make it work for me? And that's Luke's passion as he writes to his friend, but he knows it's going to be a broader reading and a broader hearing of what he has to say. 
The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, Another way to say the resurrection. And after he through the Holy Spirit, as well as the ascension, and after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And what were, what were some of those infallible proofs? Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the what? Kingdom of God. Now, what he wanted to say there is two things. He wanted to say, okay, I want to let you know it's true. And and this is not just wishful thinking. This is an event that has been seen multiple times by hundreds of people that this man named Jesus, who they saw die on a cross and being buried, has been walking around the paths of Palestine for 40 days now. And if anybody wants to reject that, all they have to do is go to all those witnesses and call them liars. And he made sure they understood it was a physical resurrection because he would eat with them. He would have meals with them. He would speak with them. He'd have them touch them. This was a physical resurrection that could not be denied. But then he wanted to go on to the next step. I want you to understand now what it means to live out the kingdom of God. How does it work? Now, let me try to break that down as simply as possible. What it means about the kingdom of God is that God should be ruling. He ought to be reigning. He is the one who is to call the shots. Now, we sang in a praise song, which is great because if if God is a perfect God and he's a good God, then we want his direction. And that's great when he directs us in those areas where we want to go, right? Oh, great, this is God's will for my life. I'm so excited, I'm going down that path. And, and then he tells us to do something else, and we're not so sure we want to go down that path. It, it's simply, if you're living for the kingdom of God, you're living for God to rule and to reign in your life. And at times that will be driven by feelings because you're just excited about where God is directing you. And other times it will take all the faith that you have because he's leading you out of your comfort zone. He's leading you to change course direction and some things maybe you've always done and now you realize maybe what I've always done is not what God always wants me to do. But it's trusting him that his plan is the best. Not always the easiest. Doesn't mean it's not going to have some suffering involved in it. But God can be trusted. And you want him to reign in your life. You want him to rule in your life. You want him to call the shots in your life. That's what it means to live for the kingdom of God. Now, as we th- look at that throughout what God has said in his word, there's some, there's, there's some things we need to understand about that. Because sometimes when we think, well, if, if he is ruling and reigning and he's a good God, then only good should happen in my life. Well, here's where we need to understand there, there's two stages or phases to God's kingdom. And let me illustrate how God has done that in other times. Now, as we think about Jesus, Jesus came the first time. And if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you're convinced he's also going to come a what? Second time. There was, in a sense, two stages to his coming. A first coming and a second coming. And as we think about the kingdom of God, if we don't get this straight, we're going to be struggling with God when God doesn't seem to be good to us or fair to us. 
there is a first stage to his kingdom and there is a second stage to his kingdom. There is a, in a sense, a sneak preview to his kingdom. And then there is the consummation of his kingdom. There's the partial, though exciting experience of his kingdom. And then there's the fullness of his kingdom. When we struggle with that kind of popular saying, why do bad things happen to good people? It's, it's philosophical when it just involves other people. But when it happens to us, it's more than just philosophical. It becomes theological. Because ultimately, who do we complain to? We can complain about maybe the human instruments that kind of messed our life up. But ultimately, we begin to look up and say, God, what's up with this? Well, we understand that God is still ruling, but we will never experience God's fullness of his kingdom when every right will be manifested, every wrong will be corrected, every suffering will be eliminated. That's the future. What we are called to be is people who live under his rule, his reign. He's calling the shot. And we are in the process of helping other people enter into the kingdom that is to come in the future. What I want to do, I want to go through a variety of passages that speak about his present kingdom and then look at his future kingdom. All right. So you have your Bibles, we're going to start turning or just listen on as, as I read a variety of texts. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. What is the kingdom now? And it's up on your screen. We're going to have one reference I think I gave wrong to Jamie earlier in the week. James, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. And I just want to make some very simple observations about this. Interesting enough, we won't take a lot of time to to talk about it, but John the Baptist basically said the same thing. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And really all that is saying is that, as John said, he was talking about the one who he was preparing to come, which was Jesus. And when Jesus was saying, he was simply saying about himself, the kingdom or a rule of God is wherever the king is close. And you can simply say this, if you want to be in on the kingdom of God, the reign of God, it's when you're connected with the king or connected with Jesus. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is being connected with Jesus. How about Matthew chapter 5, verse 3? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 is really part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's the king giving his message, the Messiah king. And then he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's no difference between the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's really saying the same thing. Now, how, how do people get in on that present form of the kingdom? Well, you could put it in a variety of different ways. What does poor in spirit mean? But let me just put somebody put it this way. It's being convinced you don't deserve it. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. If I felt I was rich in spirit, I wouldn't be looking for anything else spiritually. Because I already have it. You know, if I got every, all the money in the world, why would I go after any more money? Because I got it all already. And if I was rich in the spirit, I wouldn't be going any other place because I already have it. And it's keep flowing in. But if I recognize I am poor in spirit, that simply means I need, I need God in my life. And that's the first step of entering into the, the present form of God's rule calling the shots in your life. Matthew 6.33, this is kind of an attitude approach. 
But Matthew 6.33, a verse that many people memorize, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What does God want from his people? He wants us to seek first his rule in our life, his righteous standard in our life. Our challenge in life is not for us to determine what is right. It's simply to understand and determine what God thinks is right. And a person who is in the present experience of God ruling, reigning in their life, is a person who seeks first that to be true about their life. How about Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21? And and this really speaks about the Jewish challenge as they thought about their Messiah to come. Because they thought of the kingdom as only being physical. But what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21? He said, now when he was asked, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God has not come with observation. And that simply was saying this, look at, you'll never participate in the kingdom of God as all, if all you're looking for is military might, as all if you're looking for is to all your problems being solved physically. It's not an observing thing in terms of that. Nor will they say, see here, see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is where? It's within you. See, the present form of the kingdom is God ruling within your life. It's the presence of God in you. And apart from that, you have not understood the now what of the resurrection. The resurrection is all about not God living out there, but God living within here. John 3, verse 3, that very familiar story in which Jesus is visited by a religious man, a man well-versed in the Old Testament. And he asked him a question about, you know, where he's coming from and getting the message from him. And Jesus answered and said to him, verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he's saying there's got to be a radical change in your life if you're going to experience the present form of the kingdom. One thing is true about every person here. We've already had the first birth. We've all been born physically. Uh, Norma was born physically on this day. How many years ago was that? No, we won't. It's her birthday today. We're all born physically, but it's not necessarily everyone here has been born spiritually. And he's saying, this is how you get in on the kingdom of God. Something's got to be happen, happen from God. It's got to be a God thing that radically changes your life. Now, Romans, this actually is the wrong passage in our outline. Romans chapter 14. Verse 11 is a great verse. Jesus, uh, in John chapter 14, verse 17. Paul is is really remarking here that in, in Romans chapter 14, that this is the essence of the kingdom. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the present form of the kingdom? What, what's the experience right ha, ha, we have right now? Is, is the, it's not about religious ritual. It's about experiencing the life that God has for you. And what kind of life is that? Righteousness, doing the things God wants you to do. But the benefit of that is you have peace with God and the peace of God. 
The Bible describes people who are outside his kingdom, outside his rule, outside his reign as being enemies of God. And the peace and then peace only that God can give is that no longer are we at odds. No longer are we battling God, but we're now peace with him. But not only that, we experience that peace with God in the sense that that in the peace of God in that our hearts and minds are not filled with turmoil. But we're settled inside. Because the presence of God goes with us everywhere. But how about, how about the one that fills us potentially with enthusiasm for life? But he also, the kingdom of God is not only righteousness, peace, but it's joy. We ought to be the most joyful people in the world. No matter if we're facing surgery this week, as some of you are. No matter whether things are going crazy around you, that, that God gives you that, that undescribable sense of this is the fullness of life being connected with the living God. That's why Paul could say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And he said, it's in the Lord. It's returning to your source of joy, which is Jesus. And he said that while he was in prison. That makes no sense unless it could be described as a God thing. God was ruling and reigning in his life to the point where he could say, for me to live as Christ doesn't matter anything else. He said, everything else I have done, I count as rubbish, as just manure. Apart from just knowing the living God. I mean, was there a wedding? Was there some kind of wedding on this week? Was there, you know? Um, I mean, did people go crazy about this royal wedding? Or did some of you go crazy about that? But, I mean, people went crazy about that. And I'm sure for those who like those kind of things, you would have loved to have been there. Maybe on, get one of those prime seats. And it's all right to enjoy those kind of things. Some of you are totally excited about seeing Boston lose today in basketball. You know, it's all kinds of things that you could be excited about. All right? And God gives us things to enjoy. But let me tell you, is there, if it's true, could there be anything greater in life than know the living God personally? I, I can't imagine that. I mean, there's some people I would like to meet in this, in this world that I probably will never meet personally. But imagine if you could meet the living God who created everything. Can it get any better than that? And that's what he's trying to say here. That the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God is not going through the motions about religious activity. And that's what Romans 14 is all about. We are already over, out, out of time. Romans 14 is all about. It's about experiencing right living. Experiencing peace with God and the peace of God. It's experiencing the greatest source of joy, which is knowing God. That's what it's about. That's the present form of the kingdom. But let me be very clear. That's not all there is. (laughs) There's a kingdom to come. Real quickly. Remember that prayer, Jesus? We call it the Lord's Prayer. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy thy name thy kingdom what come thy will be done where on earth and how well should it be done earth just as it is in heaven let me ask you is that true right now is god's rule here on earth just as good as it is in heaven no there's a future form of the kingdom and until that comes we should not expect everything in this world to go right And when we as God's people complain like other people complain, we're living like the kingdom is now. The fullness of of God's kingdom is in the future. There's going to be no utopia here. I don't care who's in office. 
I don't care what happens in the Middle East. I don't ha- I care what happens the other place. I mean, I care, but that's not going to change. It's only going to happen according to God's timetable. And we won't turn those passages, but in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, as, he, as, Paul's, as Peter's preaching the message, he says, I'm preaching to you so that the future refreshing times will come. He's talking about future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about the kingdom of God being handed by the Son over to the Father in the future. In Titus, it talks about that we should look forward to a blessed hope. If all that we hold on to this life in this, in this life, dearly, is what's here, then we're missing it. It's about what's going to come. In Colossians 3, it says that we should uh, seek not the things below, but the things above. Where we're seated at the right hand of God. It's going to get better than this. All those commercials that you hear, all those beer commercials aren't true. It can get better, than this, and it's going to get better than this for God's people. So what's the point this morning? And I'm only giving you one point. We we will skip the second point. Is that God has a now what for his people. And if we can just get a sense of it. It's living in the present form of his rule and reign within. And that byproduct ought to be right living. It ought to be experiencing the peace of God in in its fullness. And and experiencing his joy in its fullness here. But never in comparison to what it's going to be. And so as we go through life, we have a present perspective and we have a future perspective. And we live within those two stages of his coming. And that all happens because Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Well, I really pray as we kind of examine this this thing called the kingdom of God, that we might not just see it as some theological principle that doesn't touch down where we live. Because this really is what the message is for the world. That God is offering his presence into people's lives. To to change what's messed up and, and turn over those things that we mess up because we don't know where to go by giving us his direction and his rule and his reign. And Father, I, w- I would pray for anyone here this morning that might be like Theophilus, who was, who was kind of maybe on the outside looking in and Luke was trying to persuade them, this is what life is all about. This is, this is where your life which is wrong becomes right. This is where your life which is filled with turmoil becomes filled with peace. And here where you're Life is only looking for the next happy moment can have joy in the midst of everything. Father, help us to live presently under your rule, but look forward to what's coming next. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.